Jesus comforted the troubled and troubled the comfortable. If you've been in church for a while, if you grew up in the 90s, you probably know this song. This is the day, this is the day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice, I will rejoice and be glad in it. So it's been around for a while. There's some days that that's easy to do, to sing that song. This is the day that the Lord has made. I just got a really big grace. Or when Stacy said yes, when, when I asked her to marry me. That was, this is the day that the Lord has made. Thank you for blinding her, Lord. <laughs> but I'm going to talk today about the days when this song is a song of declaration. The days when you don't feel it. God prophesied about those days too. We, we like the prophecies in the Old Testament about the days of blessing and other things. We don't put on our refrigerators the prophecies about the Valley of Vision. I'm going to talk about the Valley of Vision or the days of refining. We love the mountaintop of vision. We all love that. But we don't like the mo more important part, the Valley of Vision. In Isaiah 22, Isaiah prophesies about this day for Jerusalem. Isaiah 22.5 says, For the Lord God of hosts has a day of tumult and trampling and confusion in the valley of vision, a battering down of walls and a shouting to the mountains. This is the day that the Lord has made. So what is this valley of vision? It says a time of tumult. And looking up the Hebrew for that, I found another English word that I really like. It's called discomfiture. What discomfiture is, it's when, when someone purposely makes somebody uncomfortable. God does that. The God of all comfort sends a day of discomfiture. Why? Because if we find our comfort in things that don't last, that's a comfort that won't last. And so he's going to shake everything that is shaken. So it's a time of tumult, a tearing down of the idols of comfort, a time of trampling, which is a treading down. We all have pride in our lives. If you don't think you have pride, that's one of the areas you have pride in. How many of you guys' life has humbled you at some point? I make a joke a lot about that everyone's an expert on parenting until you have kids. They will humble you quick. So it says a time of tumult, a time of trampling, a time of confusion. How many of you guys just woke up one, one morning and you're like, God, what is going on? Where are you? Who's had a time like that where, where you're like, God... Yesterday, everything was great. Now, I, I don't feel you. I don't see you. And there's things in my life that don't make sense. So a time of tumult, a time of trampling, a time of confusion, a battering down of walls. What are the walls that need to come down in your life? A shouting to the mountains. What are the mountains in your life? And God will use circumstances that don't look like him to us. What are the circumstances that you're complaining about that God might be using to form you? How do you respond when hard times hit? 
My first response usually is, how can I make this stop? Who's with me with that? Like, how, do, how do we push the eject button? But if that's our only response, we're missing the most important part. Later on in that chapter, God talked about Judah's response. Because he said, okay, this day is coming. And, and, and they responded by trying to do things in their own strength. And he said, but this is what you didn't do. Isaiah 22:11 says, but you did not look to him who did it or see him who planned it long ago. Our first question should be, God, where are you in this? What are you doing in me in this time? This is the day that the Lord has made. This is the day you've made, God. What is your vision for this day? We were just singing, God, you're sovereign over us. He goes on in Isaiah 22, 12 through 13. God told him what he expected out of them for their valley of vision. In that day, the Lord God of hosts called for weeping and mourning, for baldness, I got that part, and wearing sackcloth. And behold, joy and gladness, killing oxen and slaughtering sheep, eating flesh and drinking wine. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Sometimes when we hit those hard times, instead of going to God, we escape into false comforts or into a form of nihilism that's just like, okay, well, it's, nothing's going to work out anyway, so might as well just turn on Netflix. In the day of vision, are you facing what God is wanting you to? Or are you doing, the, doing things to numb or distract yourself? So why does God do this? Why take us through the valley of vision? Isaiah 48.10 says, Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. So if you know the process of refining gold and silver, what happens is they, they refine it in a furnace. They turn up the heat. So all the impurities and the dross can come to the surface, which isn't the gold, and can be wiped clean. So part of the, the reason that God allows hard times, or I call them furnace times, is so the heat can be turned up, so impurities can come to the surface, and so he can wipe it clean. Because how many of you guys, when you got married, I talked about this a while ago, when you got married, you were unaware of how selfish you were. And in the furnace times of your marriage, you realized, oh man, I am a selfish jerk. And, and the, that th those things came to the surface. So part of it is this refining time where we are the pure gold. God has given us a new heart, a new identity, but there's fragments of our old nature that are still in there. And God's like, okay, we, we're going to clean these out. We're going to purify them but I'm going to use these circumstances. Proverbs 17.3 says, The crucible is for silver, and the furnace is for gold, and the Lord tests heart. That's who he is. And by test, he's talking about not pass or fail test. It's talking about refining. That he refines hearts. He goes, okay, we're going to turn the heat up, and all the stuff in, in here that's not of me, we're going to let it come to the surface and so we can wipe it clean. Job, who knew a thing or two about the Valley of Vision, 
said, when he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. So I want to take a quick pause here before we go in any further. And why do bad things happen? Some people would say everything that happens bad is God's will. It's his perfect will. He wanted it to happen. I don't believe that. Some of you may. We can disagree on that. But I, I believe there are three reasons. But before we get into those three reasons, no matter the reasons, there's still Romans 8, 28. And it says, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purposes. So no matter what the reason, I realize when we're talking about the valley of vision, when we're talking about suffering, there's some people in here, some people even in my own family that have gone through things that are extremely difficult. So if you're in one of those seasons, if there's things that have happened, know that God cares for you. But why, why do bad things happen in our lives? There, I, there's usually three reasons, and it's one of, one of these three reasons. One is our own sin and bad choices. Sometimes we're suffering because we're stupid. Number two is other people's sins and the effect of living in a fallen world. Some things that happen to you that are not fair, not your fault. Life can be hard in a fallen world. And the third is, so it's our own sin, then there's other people's sin and living in a fallen world. And the third is God shaping us, refining us, burning away what is not from him. Usually when we go through hard times, our first question a lot of times is Why? Like, is there something I'm doing wrong, God? Is there something? Uh, when, when there was a, a man who needed healing, uh, some people came to Jesus and said, who did wrong, him or his, his parents? And, and Jesus said, hey, this is for my glory. Sometimes we won't get all of the answers. If it is your own sin, God will show you. If he's not showing you, if you're seek, earnestly seeking him and he's not showing you, and, and you're, you have other people in your life that you're open to, then don't hold on to that and go, okay, well, I must be, I must be not having enough faith. I must be sin, there must be some sin in my life. Maybe there's something that's going on. Lay yourself before God and let him do the work. On the third one, I said, shaping and refining us, burning away what is not from him. He is burning away our greatest enemy. And that's our pride. And I, I am very well acquainted with this enemy. So why is pride our greatest enemy? Why, why do I say that? Like, why not Satan? Number one, it will kill us. Proverbs 16, 18 says, pride goes before destruction. Number two, it blocks us from every good gift. Satan can't block us from every good gift, but our pride can. James 4, 6 says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So if we're proud, God will oppose us, but he gives grace, which is gifts, unmerited favor to the humble. In James 1, 16 through 17, it's one of my favorite verses. It says, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So every good and perfect gift comes from God. Humility opens that gift. Pride blocks it. 
So if we don't have humility, if we have pride, then it's blocking us from every gift, every good and perfect gift that God has for us. So if God does not burn away our pride, number one, it will kill us. Pride kills everything it touches. Two, it will block us from everything good. Three, we will not be able to walk out the purposes of God in our lives. So either God kills the pride in our lives or it kills us. I don't know you, but I'm, God, do it. Kill it. So how do we respond when we're in that valley of vision, when we're in that season of refining? How can we respond in a way that allows God to do his work? I want to go to Moses and Job to answer that question. In Numbers 12, 3, it says, Now Moses was a very humble man, more humble than anyone else on the face of the earth. How many guys would like somebody to say that about you? And this is in Scripture. Moses was a humble man, more humble than anyone on the face of the earth. So I was pretty amazed by it until I realized who wrote Numbers. Moses wrote Numbers. I'm the best at being humble. That sounds like bragging about the worst thing you can brag about. Sounds like complete, utter lack of self-awareness. I'm really humble, guys. But it sounds weird because we have an off view of what the word humble means. Humility is not a substance that we can grab onto. It's, it's a lack of something. Like darkness. Darkness is the lack of light. Humility is the lack of pride. In modern English, a different way of saying this verse, which I think has a, a more correct flow of what Moses was saying, says, now Moses was a very humbled man, more humbled than anyone else on the face of the earth. Moses was saying, I was so full of pride, God had to bring me down. And God took Moses through several valleys of vision because Moses grew up as a prince in the most powerful nation in the world. So he could have whatever he wanted. And if he, and if he walked by somebody and said something like, go get me some ice cream or whatever they had, the, they had to go do it. So some point in Moses' life, he realized his true identity. He realized he was a Hebrew that was adopted into the Egyptian family. And he saw the mistreating of his people. And it angered him. Because God had placed a call on his life to be a deliverer. He goes out one day and he sees an Egyptian beating a, a, a Hebrew slave. And he, he rushes the Egyptian and kills him. He says, he says hey, I am going to be the deliverer of these people. I'm going to step in. I'm going to be powerful enough to do this because I am a prince. He had in his mind that he was the big I am. When God gives us a vision or opens our eyes to see a problem, we want to fulfill it, but we, to begin with, we want to fulfill it in our own strength. 
God has to send us to the valley of vision so we will not kill what he has called us to with our pride. So word got out about the Egyptian. He had to hide in the wilderness. He developed a stutter, and his, di- his pride died some too. He had gone from the big I am to the little I am. His humbling was still happening. Many of us stop there. But God wants to take us to where our eyes go off of ourselves completely, not from the big I am to the little I am, but where we focus on the great I am. Moses encountered God in the flaming bush. And God spoke to him. And Moses' first response was not, God, you are so powerful, I'll do whatever you say. His first response was on his inability. He said, how can, how can I go? I, I have a stutter. He had gone from the big I am to the little I am, but God was taking him to where he would see the great I am. And Moses ended up becoming one of the greatest Old Testament prophets. But first he had to walk through the valley of vision. If you want to fulfill God's purpose for your life, you will need to also. We can't live on the mountaintop. As we go from one mountain to the next, we have to go through the valleys. So that was Moses. Job. Job was a righteous man. He was blameless, a man of complete integrity. He feared God and stayed away from evil. That's what it said in in Job 1.1. Job was rich, famous, and in one day he lost everything. All his children died. Four messengers came, one after another. All his livestock died and they, with the bad news. Hey, this is happening, and this is happening. So after tearing his clothes, shaving his head, and falling to the ground and worshiping, he responded, I came naked from my mother's womb, and I will be naked when I leave. The Lord gave me what I had, and the Lord has taken it away. Praise the name of the Lord. That was a powerful response. Sometime shortly after that, Job got terrible boils from head to toe. His wife said, are you still trying to maintain your integrity? Curse God and die. And sometimes Job's wife gets a bad rap. But when we go through struggles, we we tend to respond more like Job's wife than Job. And she had just lost all of her children, and she's looking at losing her husband, And they lost all they had. She's like, in despair, just give up. And we can go there if we let ourselves. Job replied, you talk like a foolish woman. Guys, that's one of the only times you can can say that to your wife. (laughs) Better be very sure that she's being very foolish when you say that. (laughs) Or you will be going through a valley of vision of your own making. Job replied, you talk like a foolish woman. Should we accept only good things from the hand of God and never anything bad? Job sat out in an ash heap, scraping his wounds with broken pottery. Three of Job's friends came, and he was in such a bad place. When they saw him, they didn't recognize him at first. And when they did, they wept loudly and tore their clothes and sat silently for seven days because they they saw that his suffering was too big for words. So, so we're not talking about like he had a couple boils. It was 
this, he was in an intense valley. For seven days, his friend sat with him silently. Then Job spoke. He cursed the day of his birth and questioned God. And this is where most of the book of Job is spent, is between Job talking and his friends responding. Job's friends turned on him. They were offended with what he was saying about God, which is understandable. He called God his adversary and accused him of tearing him apart. He spoke from the bitterness of his soul. He exposed the deep parts of his heart, which had a lot of accusations against God. He said if he could argue his case before God and show God how, how God was treating him, that he, he knew he would win. As he argues with his friends, and they keep going back and forth, his anger and bitterness rise more and more to the surface. He's in that furnace, and things are coming to the surface. His friends argued. They argued that he must be going through this because of sin in his life. They were seeking to defend God from Job's accusations. Because hard times make people uncomfortable, and people say stupid things in hard times. Well, uh, maybe if you had a little more faith, your baby would still be alive. These are, these are real things people have said to people who have lost their kids. Well, maybe God knew you weren't ready to be a mom yet. When we, when we get to where we try to fix things, when people are in the valley of vision, we just screw things up. So Job's friends, they should have just kept their mouth shut. The best thing you can do with somebody is, is be there and listen. Realize the stuff coming to the surface is the dross. And when God leads, you can correct, but do so gently. Realize they're inviting in, you into a really holy place. So there's this big argument between him and his friends that get, gets more and more amped up. And Joe gets more and more accusatory towards God. Then God shows up. God says, God says to Job, Who is this that questions my wisdom with such ignorant words? Brace yourself like a man, because I have some questions for you, and you must answer them. Then God starts, When were you when I laid the foundations of the world? Then there are two chapters of these questions where, where God is, I just talked about being gentle with people. It doesn't sound like God's being very gentle with Job. Job has all these questions of why is this happening, and God doesn't answer any of these questions. Instead, he starts answer, questioning Job. Where were you? Hey, you know everything. Tell me. And he ends with, do you still want to argue with the Almighty? You are God's critic, but do you have the answers? And Job replied, I am nothing. How could I even find the answers? I will cover my mouth with my hand. I have said too much already. I have nothing more to say. So Job humbles himself. Then God goes into Job for another two chapters of questions. Each question corresponding with an accusation Job made against God. At the end of those questions, Job replied, I know you can do anything, and no one can stop you. You asked, who is this that questions my wisdom with such ignorance? It is I. 
and I was talking about things I knew nothing about, things far too wonderful for me. He said, listen and I will speak. I have some questions for you, and you must answer them. I'd only heard about you before, but now I have seen you with my own eyes. I take back everything I said, and I sit in dust and ashes to show my repentance. God never answered Job's questions. But after seeing God, Job didn't need those questions answered anymore. How many of you guys have ever been in a valley of vision and, and in it, you have all these questions and accusations, and you're like, okay, God, what is all this going on? I need answers. And then you encounter God, and it all disappears. Who's, who would say, hey, I, I've been there. So then comes the crazy part in Job, at least for me, what God says next. First, I want to explain when I first read Job where I was at. I had unexplained chronic back pain and muscle fatigue. I was in my early 20s. It was getting worse. My back would seize up and I could not get up. The doctors had no idea what was wrong with me. They threw out names that sounded fancy, but if you looked at what they meant, they all meant unexplained muscle pain or fatigue. I was on six different heavy prescription medications five for the side effects of the other medications, and it was taking over-the-counter pain medication well over the recommended doses, but they were doing nothing. None of them were towards a cure either. They were all just set up to mask my symptoms. And God seemed silent on this. I was in ministry, and he'd speak to me about other things, but on this, as my, my health was getting worse and worse, I had no direction. I'd been stubbornly pushing my way through, but I was losing hope. I had lost hope. I, I was experiencing brain fog and not able to, to, to do things well because of the medication and because of the pain. I was failing Bible college and felt like I was failing everyone I was in ministry with. At night, I regularly begged God to kill me. Then someone suggested I read Job. I opened up to a friend and I said, read Job. Job is a depressing book when you're doing well. But let me tell you, when you are in the valley of vision, that is life. I didn't just read Job once. I, I, don't, I don't know how many times I read Job. I reread it over and over. And the biggest reason is what happened next really messed with me, what God said to Job's friends. God turned his direction to Job's friends, the ones who had been defending God. They were the ones that were worried about God's honor. It says, after the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz, the Timonite, he was the main guy leading the charge against Job. He said, my anger burns against you and against your two friends. For you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. For you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Now therefore take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept his prayer 
not to deal with you according to your folly. For you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. I had just read through Job and all the accusatory things Job was saying about God. And, and I grew up a good Christian boy that knows that you don't question God. But I had all these accusations in my heart against God that I kept pushing down, that was being brought to the surface. And I'd push down and be brought to the surface. And I read this, and I said, God, why, why that? The other ones, yes, they had some bad theology, but they were on your side. Was God saying Job was right, that God is an evil adversary? He's like, hey, Job's the one who finally figured it out. <laughs> I'm a bad dude. No. Because he just spent four chapters correcting Job. He was saying, Job was honest. Job came to me as he was. He had accusations in my heart, and, and, and they, when they came to the surface, he poured them out on me. He brought them to me. He looked at Eliphaz and said, you're a fake. I don't want your religion. I don't need somebody to defend me. I created you for relationship. I want to take your messed up heart and your messed up views of me and I want you to take those and bear your heart to me, laying them at my feet. It's the heart of a father. Dads, you know that. Your kids are messed up. You don't want them on their own. You want them coming to you. And you want, them, you want to hear what's going on in their hearts so that you can lead them. And God's our Father. So I began to pour out my heart to God, like Job did. Accusations and all. I don't cuss, and I didn't know if I was going to say this. This may offend some people, but I don't cuss normally in this time of my life, in my prayers, I cussed more than all the rest of my life combined. Because I just began to just go, God, this is messed up. God, where are, like, and, and just began to pour out my heart to God. And some of the things embarrassed me as, as I got things out. And God met me. In that time, there is times I've had with God that I, like I look back at and I go, God is real. While I was in the valley of vision, when he met me, he didn't heal me right away. He walked with me through the valley like he promised. He humbled me because I was drinking the poison of pride strong in my life. And that didn't take all of it out. I've had a lot of other valleys of visions. Probably have a lot more after this. I actually got worse, but as I got worse, I had hope, because my hope was not based on my circumstances changing, but on my God. One night at the youth group I was leading then, my back seized up bad, and it was a night I was supposed to speak a really powerful message that we are going to do an altar call during worship. Uh, we switched things around where we, I did my message first. And then, then we did worship. And, and I got extreme brain fog. And I got up to speak, and my notes were spinning. And I, I could, not, could not finish a sentence. 
and it was the worst sermon I've ever heard, and it was coming from my mouth. So partway through the sermon, I actually just gave up. I said, okay, I'm done. But I went and sat down in the front row, and, and I just said, God, I, I'm a complete failure. Just, and, 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 and I just had my head bowed and just was like, God, pick somebody else. I'm not, I'm not good enough to be on your team right now. And a weird thing happened. The worship team came up, and the, my worship leader said, hey, uh, you know when Josh said this sentence, and it didn't really make sense? God was speaking to me about this this week, uh, and this is what God said. And, we, and he said, and we're going to worship, and, and as, as we worship, we're going to open up the mic. And, and kid after kid came up, like junior high kid. This was junior high. There was 50 junior high kids. They came up and said, you know when Pastor Josh said this, and it didn't make any sense? God was saying, God had told me about this. And at the end of the night, there were, there were 50 junior high kids. All but one of them was on their face. It was the most powerful night of ministry that I had. And God said, I don't need you. I want you. So when I talk about the Valley of Vision, I want to encourage the people in it because... The mountaintops are great, but what's going to sustain you is what you learn in the Valley of Vision. I would not be in ministry right now if it weren't for that revelation. And he spoke so many others. God did eventually heal me, just like he restored Job's fortunes to twice it was before. Part of my healing was a total miracle. It's a different, different sermon Part of it was detoxing off of the medicines that, were, that weren't helping me, that were helping me, uh, but just masking symptoms. And part of it was changing my diet. Like, there were changes and different things. And I have more energy as a 40-something than I did as a teenager. I've had other valleys of visions, and I've never enjoyed any of them while in them but they are what I most thank God for looking back on them now. Mountaintops are fun, but the valleys are where we meet God in the deep parts of our hearts, where he transforms our hearts. So if you're in a valley, I want to encourage you. Stop trying to numb the pain through self-medication. Stop trying to escape through your own strength or wisdom. Stop using your circumstances to excuse what is coming out of you. God's bringing the dross to the surface. Don't excuse it. Let him take it away. Do be encouraged. Know that this is the day that the Lord has made. Run to God as you are. Be real. Psalm, journal, yell. Do whatever it is to get the stuff that's in you out so he can clean you. Trust God. He's the one who began a good work in you, and he'll be faithful to see it through to the end. Let him batter down your walls and shout your mountains. Finally, invite other people to walk with you. Subject yourself to other people. Be vulnerable. 
even if you need to pray for them afterwards because they were jerks. I wonder how Job's, Job and his friends were after that. Like, hey, remember the time that God was going to kill us <laughs> because we were trying to defend him against you and <laughs> then, uh, then you prayed for us? <laughs> Good times. <laughs> but I, I don't have a lot of, there was a few advices, but the main thing I wanted to, to just encourage, if you're in that valley of vision, know that this is the day that the Lord has made and there will be a testimony. If you're here and you're in a valley of vision, like I'm not going to do the thing of like close your eyes, bow your head. Who's in a valley of vision right now? Like you're, you're like, man, I am in a refining time. There's some hard things going on. If that's you. I just want you to raise your hand right where you're at. And, and I want to I pray for you. And then we're going to, uh, I want to encourage you, get prayer, from, either from the prayer team or you can go to the people by you and go, hey, man, I really need prayer right now. God, thank you that you, that all things work together for the good, for those that love you and are called according to your purposes. And I pray for those that are in that valley of vision right now. I pray encouragement. I pray that you, that they would come face to face with you. I pray as dross come to the surface and there's things that they don't like that's coming out of them, that it would be met with your grace they come face to face with you. Thank you that you love us and that you walk with us through the valley. Thank you. Praise you. Pray all this in your mighty name. Amen. So if you're in a valley, be encouraged. If you're on a mountaintop, be encouraged. Uh, but let others walk with you through the valley. That's what we're called to do, amen? As, as the family of God, we walk together.